0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is Sarah Longwell, founder and publisher of The Bulwark. Thanks, one and all. It's great to be with you uh, in this holiday week. We're recording a day early, um, and uh, we were all set to discuss the what seemed to be life getting back to something resembling normal in the nation's capital, the passage of a big relief package and the uh, sort of omnibus spending bill, which was Trumpeted as a great accomplishment. But then, of course, the orange man did a huge cannonball into the pool. And uh, we don't know where we stand now. Um, So, uh, Sarah Longwell, I'm going to start with you. Um, What do you, you know, do you realize that if he pocket vetoes this, the government will shut down? Um, It will um, affect the election, uh, in, uh, Georgia, the runoff, it will, uh, prevent people from getting, uh, their checks before the holidays or, you know, I mean, it is, it's, it's unbelievable. The military will not be funded.
1: Yeah. We didn't think we were going to get through the year without one last big temper tantrum, uh, (laughs) in which, you know, the president does what the president does best, which is make it all about him. Um, you know, I I actually can't tell what the game is here. Uh is it that Joe Biden has been getting too much attention and people are starting to turn the page and he just wants to show people that he can do this, that it all comes down to him and that he can blow this up if he wants? What's interesting is that, you know, his him sort of saying, well, you know, does he want to be this big magnanimous person? I, no, I want $2,000 checks for people so that he can be uh, a hero. The problem with that theory is that he could have done this a week ago, two weeks ago, or months uh, ago, months ago, uh, and pushed for this, but he remained totally silent only to blow this thing up at the last minute. And, you know, this is what I, I don't feel the least bit, bit sorry for Republicans, but ultimately, you know, what does Nancy Pelosi do when Donald Trump does this? She jumps right on top of it and says, this is terrific. Yes, we would love to do $2,000 checks. Let's get it done. Uh, well, of course, Republicans uh, must be absolutely tearing out their hair uh, that they would negotiated this deal. And now the president is going to make them be the ones to have to say no. Um, and, and whether or not so I guess I don't I, I would be shocked if he shut down the entire government um, just because it would be such a catastrophic thing to do. That being said, I don't put anything past him at this point. Uh, I think it probably has more to do with him just wanting the attention and wanting to say that he can, but you never know.
0: Damon, um, all the reports are that uh, this negotiation went on without any input at all from Trump. Aside from the straight comment here or there, he was completely focused on his fantasy of a stolen election and meeting with the unbelievable uh, loons and nuts, uh, conspiracy theorists who feed him what he wants to hear in the White House. He was paying no attention. Steve Mnuchin was the chief negotiator. Um, And it was Republicans, we heard, who resisted giving larger checks to individuals. Uh, Now Trump comes in and blows the whole thing up. Is this, you know, situation well, normal? Well,
2: it's normal for him. I mean, he does this a lot. He's he did it in 2018 uh with another uh I believe it was an omnibus spending bill then as well and he's done it on in smaller doses over the years while he's been president where he He sort of hangs back, sits on the sideline while the negotiation is going on. Occasionally he'll lob little grenades into the negotiation with tweets that sort of scuttle things or send them off track for a day or two. Then they come back and the deal gets made and then he throws a temper tantrum. And in the end, he usually just signs anyway. So I have to assume that is what he will do. And I think that in the end, the thing more than anything else that will lead him to do it is that someone will inform him that his little, uh, kind of display, his last acting out about the election that he wants to see happen on January 6th, uh, when several members of, uh, the House Republican, uh, uh The House Republicans are going to raise objections about the electoral count in several states, and potentially someone like Rand Paul may do the same in the Senate, which would lead, as we talked about last week, to a vote and all kinds of chaos in Congress on January 6th. Um, That could easily get scuttled if this blows up. There's a pocket veto. The new Congress is then going to be scrambling and no one is going to be in the mood to play these games about the election. So in order to uh, fulfill his last ditch fantasy of raising these questions about the uh, veracity of the vote, I think he probably will relent so that the spotlight can be on that. And uh, if that convinces you that uh, Trump has the best interests of the country in mind, then, uh, well, uh, (laughs) you you haven't been paying attention. Because this is all I can say, you know, when I heard last night what he was doing about this deal that had just been reached, and then how uh and then you get Nancy Pelosi immediately doing what any competent politician would do from the other party and say okay great we'd yeah. love to have $2000 yeah. checks absolutely mr president you just kind of you know smack your forehead and say God, the end of this cannot come soon enough. (laughs) Let's just let the circus end. So, you know, who knows how it'll play out, but let's just be absolutely clear that this is not some kind of multidimensional chess strategy going on here. This is just Trump being Trump and impulsively acting out in ways that make no strategic sense on any side.
0: Yeah. Linda, one of the things, you know... (laughs) He released a little video, and as usual, this video contains a series of false statements. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. As usual, one of some of the things he's complaining are in this bill are not in this bill. They were in the CARES Act that passed back in March. um, Complaining about money for the Kennedy Center, for example. You know, I mean, it, it. isn't, isn't it remarkable how incompetent we've learned you can be as President of the United States, how completely bat, you know what, crazy, and a significant portion of the American public thinks, no,
3: he's, he's good. He's, we like it. Absolutely. And by the way, you know, he has totally ruined the brand of the Republican Party, which even in my youth, when I was still a registered Democrat, the one thing you could count on Republicans for was competence. Mm-hmm. You know, Democrats um had good intentions and you know wanted all the great things, but they weren't very competent at delivering them. Well, Republicans. Always had at least, you know, in the past, uh, a sense that these were responsible people. They'd had big jobs, and uh, when they came into government, they knew how to run things. Well, he's blown all of that up, obviously. Uh, but you know, I, I want to take issue with uh, Damon because I'm not at all certain that this isn't part of the January 6th strategy, um, and it isn't a matter of being, you know, four-dimensional or five-dimensional, six-dimensional t- chess, whatever. Um, it is a matter of, you know, the kind of tunnel vision that he has. I mean, one of two things may be playing in his mind. One is that um, he has this fantasy that if he makes this promise that he'll deliver $2,000 per, know, per person uh, in this stimulus check, that then people will want him to be president again. Uh, mm-hmm. Look at what you know. Look at what he said that Biden. it's yeah, in the video. Yeah, yeah, what you know? What was what will Joe Biden give you? He's going to give you a lousy six hundred dollars if you you know if you stick with me. I'll give you two thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, and that that may you know that may be part of his thinking. Um, he may think, well, um, shut it all down. He didn't care if government shuts down. Why should he care? I mean, you know, he he has absolutely no regard for uh, the federal government. So I, I'm not at all certain that this isn't part of that January 6th ploy. I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to succeed, but there is something that could happen that could make a difference. Uh, Mnuchin could quit. It, you know, Bill Barr quit. Uh, at, at a certain point, as much as I was a critic of Bill Barr, enough was enough and he had to quit. Uh, Mnuchin ought to quit. I mean, if the president were in fact to veto this bill or even, you know, um, continue to fight against it, the person that he had up there negotiating on behalf of the administration has egg on his face. I mean, he's got a whole omelet spread across his face and he ought to quit. Um, it's- oh, ju-
0: Linda, can I just interrupt for one quick second to say yeah. also he's, you know, look what it does to the two Republican candidates oh, for course. Senate in Georgia who have also lauded this
3: agreement. Of course, of course. Yeah. He doesn't care. He really doesn't care. If in the back of his head he knows that he's not going to be president on, you know, at 1201 mm-hmm. on January 20th, what does he care if mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell is- uh, you know, the head of the Senate or not. He doesn't care. He'd like Mitch McConnell to get his comeuppance too. You can see him wanting to throw the Georgia election just so that Mitch McConnell is not majority leader in the Senate. This is an utterly vindictive, psychotic behaving man. And I don't think we can have any idea what he's up to. I don't think there's any way of predicting it.
0: Bill, before we got started, well, and before the news broke last night about the presence video, I thought we were going to have a nice conversation about the deal and about, you know, back to business as usual, which by the way, I have spent a career. Finding fault with, right? You know, I I hate these little giveaways for selected industries that are always part of these big omnibus packages. You know, the motorsports entertainment industry, NASCAR, you know, gets a gets a tax break, and uh, the three martini lunches back for businessmen's lunches, and so on and so forth. All of these things lobbied for by. Uh, you know, individual industries and um, paid for in, by all of the rest of us, hate all that. Uh, and, and yet I was prepared to say, you know, compared to the insanity of the Trump years, it's almost reassuring to have that kind of bargaining back. Um, but I, so I'm asking you, Bill, whether you think um, that we're ever going to get back
4: to normal. Are we ever going to get back to normal? Uh, (laughs) uh, I think that, you know, Joe Biden as president will work as hard as he can to bring that about, but he can't do it by himself. Uh, And I have I have no idea uh, how beholden the congressional Republican Party will feel. Uh, to ex-President Trump's uh, hold over a substantial portion of the Republican base. I can't do those sums. I would like to believe uh, that the kinds of Republicans who came together uh, after Thanksgiving to make common cause with some Democrats in the Senate to come up with uh, a framework for a compromise that forced the leaders back to the table— I'd like to believe that that's going to be the template for what comes next. And if I have anything to do with it, it will. Uh, But uh, I have no confidence in any predictions that I make at this point. But let's turn away from the prospects of bipartisan cooperation in the 117th Congress and focus for a minute or two, on the remaining days of the 116th Congress, which ends on January 3rd, uh, some very important outcomes for the American people are going to depend on two procedural questions. Uh, First of all, uh, the experts I've consulted tell me that the only way that uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi can bring up uh, an expansion of the individual payments uh, that President Pr- Trump has proposed to set at $2,000 uh, is to receive unanimous consent to proceed down that road. Uh, no one believes that House Republicans are going to give that consent. And if so, uh, the effort to expand the individual payment will stall, at least for now. Uh, It may come back next week, uh, but the odds seem pretty small. With regard to the broader question of the fate of the COVID-19 bill and the funding of the government uh, up until September 30th of of next year, uh, Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution uh, says that If the president is presented with a bill uh, and he does not either sign it or veto it uh, within the next 10 days, then it becomes law without his signature. This is known technically as the presentment clause, the presentment clause of of the Constitution. Uh, Unfortunately, The bill was presented to the president a couple of days after it was enacted into law by Congress, uh, which means that uh, if the president does nothing, the 116th Congress will end according to law uh, before the 10 days expire, which means that the bill simply evaporates and the 117th Congress would have to begin all over again with the budget and COVID relief. And in the meantime, government would have been shut down since December 28th. Uh, This is a truly terrible outcome, uh, which the president can achieve simply by doing nothing. Uh, And I suspect that House and Senate leaders will move heaven and earth uh, to avoid that catastrophe.
0: Thank you for that. That's very interesting. Before we turn to our next topic, I just Sarah, I want to circle back to you on on one thing. Uh, Charlie Sykes had a really incendiary, wonderful uh, newsletter this morning, where he asked, you know, are you are you all happy, basically, uh, of of Republicans who signed on for this uh, against all warnings, Um, and um, it is. I mean, you know, you've got Rich Lowry and some others, you know, saying, well, the president's behavior trying to overturn this election is really regrettable. It's really not good. But, you know, every single Republican and um, conservative thought leader, right, who until a few weeks ago was saying, yep, we we should definitely reelect this guy. um, You know, it would be nice, wouldn't it, to hear at least some contrition, at least some uh, comment along the lines of you know i i underestimated just how crazy he could behave
1: you know mona it's the holidays and so <laughs> i want to not indulge in too much schadenfreude but there is a part of me and charlie quotes me in his newsletter because i had a piece and this was back in the summer saying you know what did you think was going to happen folks uh you know you elect somebody of extraordinarily low character, who is who constantly lies and is corrupt, uh, you know, who who wanted to be the chaos candidate, who said he was going to burn it all down. Why would you be surprised that things are now on fire? And you know, yesterday <laughs> Trump made so much news yesterday between the pardons and blowing up the bill that one of the things that people might not have missed is he also went after John Thune. Uh, the senator from South Dakota, for daring to suggest that Joe Biden was, in fact, going to be the next president and says he's going to primary him in 2022. And yeah, there is when you when you just watch or the way that, that Trump is sort of blowing up uh, the Republicans negotiations on this bill, there's this part of you that says, you're, there you go, guys. This is what you get. You have to ride this tiger now. You accommodated him until the very last breath. You have watched him turn on everybody, burn down people's careers. And what, you thought he wasn't going to come for you too? Of mm-hmm. course he is. And then and then to your point, there are the folks uh, who, there's a little bit of Twitter action right now that's kind of like, a, well, I, guessed, I guess those Never Trumpers might have been onto something. Now that <laughs> we see how this, this guy is acting, you know, post-election um, in refusing to concede because, of course, we were all called hysterical. We were called unhinged for suggesting that he might behave like this. And But it is – it defies credulity to suggest that the president's post-election behavior somehow is different than everything we saw pre-election. And not just pre-election 2020, but pre-election 2016. Right. Like, his character has been his destiny the whole time. And I think for those of us uh, who are sort of part of this Never Trump world, it was saying this man's character is more than deficient. And that is going to lead us to chaos, which is where we find ourselves.
0: Right. Um, yes, he uh, that just occurred to me that he makes Bill Clinton's character flaws seem like trifles <laughs> by comparison. Oh, and- <laughs> what?
1: Yes, all so quaint. I mean, you just yeah. think about that Mark Rich pardon, which was contemptible and done sort of in the very uh, yep. the last moments of the Clinton presidency, only to have just twenty Mark Rich type pardons come from President Trump to very little and, and worse and Trump worse action.
0: because because Trump pardons war criminals. He 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 wants people to believe that war criminals uh, are, are honorable and, uh, hard done by that, uh, that it's, it's just, it's disgraceful the way they've been treated. He says, uh, having no concept of justice, having no concept of honor, uh, being the reverse of all of that. And, um, you know, part of me thinks I look at someone like John Thune, who I used to like and think, you know what you, you asked for it. This is, this is your just reward. Um, okay. So I guess I'm not thoroughly of the holiday spirit. Um, let's turn now to, um, practical thoughts about, um, reform. Uh, now it's going to be hard in the next period to have anything like the comprehensive reforms that we saw passed after Watergate because Watergate was followed by a huge party change. The Democrats swept in by huge margins and they pretty much had their uh, discretion about how they wanted to reform things. That obviously is not true here. But um, but I'd like us to, to talk a little bit about some possible reforms that might get bipartisan support and of, or even if they won't, things that would be helpful going forward. Now that we've seen that you cannot rely on the voters to use good judgment and only elect people who are fit for the office, um, that we may need to um, codify certain certain rules. So um, I'll go first. I think maybe we need to make it a law that anyone, that any candidate for president has to release his or her tax returns. Uh, Damon Linker, what about you?
2: Well, the the truth is that I am not uh, an expert in these kind of process questions of how government works, so I will cede my time to Bill Galston, who does know far more about that but I will also note that uh, Jack Goldsmith who was a guest uh, on the podcast a few months ago uh, has uh, has co-written a book with former congressman Bob Barr that that is an entire book filled with great ideas along these lines so I cede my time both to that book <laughs> and, sorry. To, and yeah. to Bill Galston
0: <laughs> just, just a just a, a quick correction it's with um, Donald uh, with bear not bar oh, sorry uh, um, the, yeah yeah that's the, uh, the co-author okay yeah um, sure Bill Galston where do I
4: start <laughs> uh, let me let me start with something that sounds abstruse but isn't you know we all found ourselves uh, this summer uh, getting a crash course frequently self-administered, uh, in the vagaries of the 1887 Electoral Count Act, which every, reg- every expert regards as so opaque and muddled as to, disc- as to defy easy interpretation on some of the most crucial points. So, you know, rather than, rather than starting with items that are really fresh, why don't we go back a century and a quarter and review the text of that law and, you know, and rewrite it in English and make some decisions that that law did not quite make or didn't clearly make. And one of the things that we need to do in the process, you know, is to is to offer uh, and pass a law uh codifying the intention of the constitutional provision that gives states a uh, plenipotentiary authority over the selection of electors, right? That, you know, that loomed as the biggest potential roadblock uh, 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 on the road to a normal election, there are right. ways so do-
0: can i can i interrupt for one quick sec just to clarify one of the things that was unclear there right is this matter of where it says the legislatures shall be uh shall have the sole authority and and it's not clear whether that excludes the governor what about if the you know the state supreme court has made a ruling about it that sort of thing right
4: well that's exactly what i have in mind to say nothing of, of it, the case that was you know uh, you know, the, sort of the tip of the spear, namely, every single legislature had passed a law saying that the electors, that state's electors, shall be awarded to the winner of the popular vote in that state. Mm-hmm. So, if that law is on is on the books, can legislators just disregard it before or without repealing it? Right, and so I could go on in this vein for quite some time there. Before we get to controversial, you know, uh, you know controversial uh, uh, provisions that reflect today's burning controversies, let's get the basics right. So that's mm-hmm. where I
3: would begin. Yeah, that's that's an excellent excellent one, um, Linda. That is an excellent one. And I think it absolutely needs to be clarified. Um, mine is more philosophical. Um, one of the things that has- hey, That's formed- my beat. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, well, I know. Oh, well. Uh, one of the things that has most horrified me uh, during this election cycle is uh, the pictures of armed people at state capitals, in front of uh, election officials' houses or marching in the streets of Washington, D.C. in order to intimidate people. And so it strikes me that, you know, we have this kind of um, question about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. And I've always been one who believes that private individuals do have the right um, to own guns, although I think it can, in fact, be regulated um, sensibly, uh, but what happens when the First Amendment and the Second Amendment clash? Because it is absolutely clear that the reason these fellows, and they are mostly fellows, uh, show up on the streets uh, armed to the teeth, carrying uh, semi-automatic weapons, or you know, other uh, gear that indicates that you know they're tough guys and and are going to uh, enforce their views uh, with the barrel of a gun, not at the ballot box. Well, the reason they do this is to try to scare people it, from exercising their First Amendment rights. So I'm just wondering um, whether or not there can't be an an honest and open debate about whether the First Amendment should not trump the Second Amendment um, in that you should not be able to bear arms either you know particularly not uh, open carry arms in order to stifle speech that you know, the right of assembly, the right of uh, free speech uh, is, in fact, the most precious of the rights in the Bill of Rights, and that those who attempt to interfere with the rights of others uh, through the uh, brandishing of weapons um, should not, in fact, be forbidden. And I don't know how we'd go about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just throwing that out there, because I think we cannot allow it to continue that these people show up on state capitals, that they show up in, on people's lawns, or on the streets of major cities trying to stifle speech.
0: Uh, Linda, do you remember in 20, uh, 2008, Obama's first election, there was some random guy called a new Black Panther who showed up at a polling place Absolutely, in Philadelphia yep. and he had a uh, billy club mm-hmm. and the right wing media went berserk over this for weeks I mean, you know, it was that we have to stamp out this, you know, this revolutionary activity, and these are dangerous thugs, and on and
3: on and on. E- even wearing black, black I think, was enough to make um, these snowflakes shiver uh, in their boots. And exactly, you know, uh, and, yeah. And, and it was yeah. a huge, it was a huge deal on the right. I mean, yes. it's written about obsessively. It was one guy. Yeah, one. I know. One guy, And
0: now you have, and he didn't have a gun. Now you have all of these armed people showing up all over the place. I mean, okay. Just for the, for the record. All right. Um, Bill Galston, you, you wanted to return to something that Linda said real quick before I get to Sarah, or did you, did you make your point?
4: Uh, No, just very, very quickly. uh, There's a simpler way of thinking through this issue than trying to argue that it, one amendment to the Constitution is more important than, the, than another. Okay. Uh, I think that that will lead to a roadblock very quickly. Every single amendment to the Constitution, every, part, you know, every one of the rights is subject to reasonable time, place, and manner regulation. So you do not have a right you know, to open up a revival tent at 2 in the morning in the middle of a residential area. And, you know, states, you know, states have all sorts of restrictions on the ways in which First Amendment rights can be exercised, you know, to, you know, consistent with public order and safety. So this is not a hard case. And you don't have to say that the First Amendment is more important than the Second Amendment in order to pass constitutionally permissible laws regulating the bearing of firearms near polling places.
0: Well, thank you for that, Bill. By the way, our producer, Jim Swift, n- notes that um, some of the new GOP House caucus members are asking Capitol Police to allow them to carry guns in Congress. So that's great. Um, okay. Sarah Longwell, did you um, want to propose a reform that you think is possible?
1: Yeah, mine is very simple and not at all philosophical. It is uh, that you cannot install your family members in the White House and allow their spouses to run the executive branch. Uh, You know,
0: (laughs) that could never happen.
1: I I find it uh, just preposterous and something that everybody just sort of accepted early on that Ivanka was going to become a White House advisor, uh, that Jared Kushner became the center of power. In that White House and did high-level diplomatic work on behalf of the United States without proper security clearance, I might add. Um, and so, this is one of those things that should be easy, should be bipartisan. I've actually got a raft of these. Um, <laughs> I am not, also not a not a not an expert, but I have as a as a conservative long had a penchant for reigning in executive power, and I think that you know understanding that so much of. Trump has helped us understand how much of what goes on at the highest levels of government is on the honor system. And when you have a person who has no honor, uh, it creates tremendous peril. And and not only that, but I mean, he's an unsteady person. And so things like, um, you know, war powers or emergency powers that reside with the president, those are too broad for a person uh, like him. And and so I think we should revisit those. And I also think, um, you know, one of the things that we really need to guard against in the future is the ability to monetize the presidency, because it creates perverse incentives for people to seek the office. And so simple things like whether it's putting your businesses in a blind trust, um, as one might do with a peanut farm, you know, things, things like that, uh, that would disincentivize a bad actor, you know, trying to Juice their business uh, by becoming president,
0: right? Um, Agree. Um, So I I would add um, just there. I too have a a very long list and uh, recommend the Goldsmith uh, book, which which is really comprehensive and very very uh, well done. Um, Includes things like more protection for inspectors general and the various departments and all of that. Is really great, but one of them. Uh, speaking of the other news that's breaking today, namely about these these pardons, um, you know, this president has abused all of his powers, arguably, um, but uh, particularly the pardon power, um, and. Um, there isn't very much law on this because, uh, the courts have tended to interpret the president's authority here quite broadly. And there's never been a case before where, you know, they've been challenged to, um, consider things like we've seen. So, for example, you know, it's not known whether the president can self pardon. Um, that's still to be determined. And it, Is there has never been a case before, as has come up with this administration, of dangling pardons in exchange for silence? So I don't know if this could pass on a bipartisan basis, which tells you a lot about the state of the Republican Party, but it could, the Congress could pass a law making it a crime for the president to offer pardons in exchange for anything, right? No quid pro quo. And, um, you know, Republic for, you know, force Republicans to take a vote on that. If they're going to say, no, we, we want to keep the option open for presidents to dangle pardons for lawbreakers, uh, uh, you know, exchange for silence or for friends, let them say it. Um, but, uh, anyway, so that would, um, that would be why. And and one more, I would just say, again, this is all coming from this, uh, Goldsmith book, but uh, it's also very important in light of what we've seen. And that is, um, during the impeachment process way back at the beginning of 2020, which seems like a million years ago, but um, one of the things that, that the president was able to do was to defy congressional subpoenas and um, the Congress elected, I think wrongly, but they elected not to, to litigate that in the courts. Um, the the uh, Another possible um, re- legal reform would be to expedite judicial review of congressional subpoenas uh, if the president defies them uh, anyway so these are all possible possibilities and uh, and as a number of you have said and it's right you know it's it's uh, law is all you have when virtue fails or um, as somebody once said um, the law allows what honor forbids. Uh, so, and unfortunately, we we do though have to beef up uh, beef up the law to deal with the possibility that we will have another uh, another president of extremely low character. Okay, um, now we'll get more in the holiday spirit. Uh, unless anybody has anything to add on that subject, take a quick look. No, okay. So we will move on to what. People recommendations from everybody about things to watch over the holiday. Uh, your favorite series or movies or music or anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be holiday themed, but things that you've really enjoyed and that have enhanced your life recently. Linda.
3: Sorry about that. Um, well, this isn't at all holiday theme, but one of the things um, that I really love uh, and that I have missed uh, enormously during the pandemic is the theater. Uh, for many years, I had season uh, tickets to the Shakespeare Theater, and I love Shakespeare and I love theater. And so, um, one of the things I, my recommendation is going to be a series that I think started in 2012. It's called The Hollow Crown, and it is available on PBS. And what it is, is a series of adaptations of William Shakespeare's plays, most of them his histories, uh, and they're wonderful. What makes them wonderful is the acting is superb. They have some of the best uh, Shakespearean actors um, doing the parts, but they are filmed as if they were movies. And so outdoor scenes are really outside on the countryside, um, and they're quite luscious and beautiful. Mm. Um, uh, Richard II uh, starts the series, and then Henry IV, part one, and part two, Henry V. And then the season uh, two, I think, is Henry the Sixth, part one and two, and Richard the uh, Third. So it's a um, if you love Shakespeare, um, and even for those who you know may not think they love Shakespeare. This is a very accessible way to get in it. And it's not quite like watching a filmed play. It is more like watching a film like A Man for All Seasons, um, which is from a play, but um, uh, translated to the screen very well. So that's my recommendation.
0: And by the way, A Man for All Seasons was my favorite movie of all time. So Mine, glad, mine glad as well. It. And
3: and by yeah. the way, Thomas Moore um is uh again in the news because a society named in his honor is um filing all sorts of absolutely ridiculous um suits in the uh, election. So yes, uh, I, yes,
0: I know. Uh, and, uh, and it's a, it's a shame that they drag his name into it. But, but um, by the way, there is a, um, a different take, completely different take now that's available uh, uh, in the entertainment realm uh, called Wolf Hall, which takes the character um, of, uh, of uh, who's the villain, Thomas um- Cromwell. Cromwell, thank you. Thomas Cromwell is the villain in *A Man for All Seasons* and in the in the More story. Uh, in this series, he becomes the hero. So it's interesting. It's it's well done. Anyway, okay, uh, let's move on to Damon Linker.
2: Um, well, I, uh, as some listeners may know and others may not, I'm a, a big music guy. Um, I uh, I I write about rock music a fair amount, and songwriting and things and columns uh, throughout the year. And just this week, I offered to uh, readers of the week my uh, take on the best album of the year, so I will make that here as well. It's by a Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter named Phoebe Bridgers, an album called Punisher. Uh, That is, it was... Uh, recorded in in dribs and drabs throughout 2018 and 19. So you can't really say that she has written and recorded the album in light of the pandemic at all. Uh, for instance, Taylor Swift did exactly that. She's released two albums this year that have been written and recorded this year, but the Bridgers album uh, uh, fits the mood and the kind of experience of lockdown in a way that's sort of uncanny. I think it's a very, good collection of songs and the whole production of it, I think mirrors the mood of this year uh, in a way that is very powerful. So I recommend that uh, to listeners. Uh, I also will note uh, a couple of other things. One um uh, I just recently with my wife rewatched the TV series The Americans and was just stunned once again at how great it is. Uh I know uh several people uh, David French is a huge fan of it as well. So, if you haven't seen The Americans, it's available for streaming uh, on a number of platforms. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I definitely recommend that. Very, very well done series. And for, you know, listeners of this podcast, maybe appreciate that it's centered on the Cold War and the 1980s and Soviet spies living in America. So, it's juicy in that way that the listeners of this podcast might appreciate uh, more than perhaps some others. So, I recommend that as well.
0: Can I, I watched it. In fact, it got me through uh, many hours of uh, recuperation from surgery last year. But um, but I have to say, the body count of people that these spies wind up killing is just ridiculous. There's almost one in every episode. But anyway, well, it is right, very entertaining. Did that not
2: really happen in Washington in the 1980s? <laughs> like the FBI are investigating, and like every other day, there's a new yeah, a new dead body from the Soviet spies living right in Washington.
3: Yeah and, and, and David, you forgot to mention that it has a wonderful music if you um lived through the 80s um you will recognize many of the songs, and they do a brilliant job of matching songs with episodes. Yes,
2: that's certainly true. As they march through the '80s, it starts around '81, right as Reagan is coming into the White House, and it ends in '87, uh, right uh, right around when Gorbachev is coming to the U.S. for uh, the big the big meeting with Reagan about uh, you know, missiles and uh, the START treaty and so forth. So it's uh, and and yes, as Linda says, the music. May- matches it perfectly step-by-step step all the way
0: through. Okay. Damon, did you have anything else?
2: Uh, I mean, I could mention, I suppose, uh, I, I've, I'm doing a podcast on David Bowie, if anyone is interested. I'm actually, yes, I'm plugging something of my own, but it's I'm good. directing yeah, it fine. towards something else. Uh, Political Beats is a very good music podcast that is put out by National Review. And uh, the host... Uh, invited me on to to do several episodes on the career of David Bowie. We've released the first of three. It's only a little over three hours long. (laughs) So it's incredibly long and in-depth. I mean, Bowie had a very long career, uh, but we're we're taking our sweet time with it. But that is available. You can find that at the National Review website or in the Apple Podcast app under Political Beats. And uh, I'm the guest on the the Bowie episodes. So if you're interested in the history of rock and Bowie or anything related to it, uh, that might be something nice to curl up with over the holidays.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Listen while you bake your cookies. Yes. Bill Galston. Nine
4: hours of Ziggy Stardust?
2: <laughs> no, really? Ziggy's only a little at the beginning. There's so much more.
4: <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, you know, yeah, you know, I like music of a different era, so I can recommend a series on the Great American Songbook, originating mm-hmm. from the 92nd Street Y uh, oh. in, in New York City. Uh, for example, my my wife and I just watched a sort of a cabaret style presentation on the life and music of George Gershwin. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, fabulous photos, excerpts from Ira's diary about writing lyrics with George, uh, you know, young cabaret singers singing their hearts out. Uh, it was it, it, it was one of the few feel-good experiences I've had during this entire pandemic. Moving was right this a YouTube thing, or
0: where did you see it?
4: Well, you go to the 97, 92nd Street Y. Uh, oh, their
0: website.
4: Their website, and uh, and yes, you have to pay a little bit to watch, uh, but you know what? You know, yeah. What else? What else do we have to spend our money? <laughs> on that day? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, move, moving right along, I'm a huge fan of police procedural British police procedurals. You know, for a reason that a very good article in The Atlantic uh, explained, in, not in the most recent issue, but the, the one uh, recently passed. Uh, and that is that because because the British police are basically prohibited from using violence, except in dire circumstances, it's about actual detective work uh, with really interesting characters and. Uh, you know, there's a show called Unforgotten, uh, which is a, a a cold case show starring an astounding uh, British actress by the name of Nicola Walker, uh, one of my favorites, but there are many others as well. So, And finally, uh, my wife and I are now about two-thirds of the way through The Queen's Gambit, uh, and it's everything it's cracked up to be uh the reviewers adjective riveting was invented for this show how you can make a riveting show about chess uh, <laughs> is is beyond me but they pull they pull it off uh you know, it was something to spare
0: indeed uh I can second that. And by the way, little uh, promotion for our podcast: um, the the chess consultant for the Queen's Gambit it was Gary Kasparov, who uh, is going to be a guest on Beg to Differ in early January. So we look forward to that.
4: Yes. Well, um, when I was when I was on the board for the National Endowment of Democracy, you know, Gary made a number of appearances. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were very different, but they all had something in common, namely his prediction that Putin would fall within nine months.
0: Uh, (laughs) Oh, well, the wish being the father to the thought, I guess. Um, But, um, okay, Bill, was that the end of your
4: list? The very end.
0: Okay. By the way, I'll tell you that, um, you know, uh, speaking of British police procedurals um, and body counts, because we were talking about the Americans, um, we my husband and i like to watch these also but um you know they they're always set in these idyllic you know british countryside settings and yet you know every single episode there's a murder and uh, when we actually were visiting the Cotswolds a few years ago you know our guide was saying you know how wonderfully peaceful everything was and my husband said oh come on you can't fool us we we know what really goes on in these peaceful little <laughs> villages <laughs> we watch we watch pbs <laughs> <laughs> um okay. Sarah Longwell.
1: Uh yeah, that's a it's an endorsement of Midsummer Murders right there. Yes, it is. Yes, uh-huh. it is. You know, for anybody who's thinks, well, look at that—they've got that that young woman there, Sarah. She might come with some um, with some new hip recommendations. Uh, <laughs> I regret to inform you that all of mine are essentially foreign uh, and uh, things that um, I think are for everybody. But if you don't want to watch them, you can you can tell your mom about them. I also just want to second the endorsement of Nicola Walker, who is in—I don't know when she sleeps. She's in every British television show. It's true She's in all the shows. Yep. um and and is excellent but here are here are my um my two two favorites uh so one is the french village uh which is streaming on amazon prime uh it is in french uh and about a french village during world uh world war II.
0: with subtitles
1: with subtitles uh it is the most engrossing uh and and look, I'm not going to lie to you. It is, it has been a difficult time to watch things about fascism uh, during this moment because you see certain parallels in the propaganda and other things that, that sort of make your your blood run cold. But uh, for anybody who thinks, oh my god, I can't watch something else about World War II, like i just trying to sell my sister on this, and she was just like, I think I've I think I've had enough in my lifetime of World War II. Um, you know, whether it's literature or anything else. And I just I I really want to get her there because it's it's sort of just soapy enough um that you can get invested in the characters. Uh but it but it's about this little French village that is sort of, you know, it's not it's it's adjacent in some ways. Um and but it really is about it's it's a it's a long sort of 82 episode meditation on what it means to collaborate. And the degrees of collaboration, and um, and and what is the moral? How do you how do you grapple with the morality of that? Uh, and it's just, but it's just fantastic. Uh, but look, if you want something lighter and funnier, uh, I have not cry, I have not laughed until I've cried as much as I did um, at a show on Netflix called Dairy Girls. And I had a friend who kept telling me, you got to watch this. And, I, and just like for whatever reason, I was looking at it on the algorithm, which was also pushing it on me hard uh, and thinking, I don't know why this just like doesn't really it doesn't seem like I want to watch it. And then I did. And I finally and like the first episode, uh, it is it is set in the, the 80s in Ireland, um, also sort of adjacent to, you know, the kind of terrorism that was going on at the time. And, uh, and these, it's about these girls, uh, in school and, uh, there's not really a way to explain it other than it is a comedy. Uh, they're in Catholic school and it is, uh, the kind of situational, uh, comedy. It's just so funny. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. You'll thank me if you go watch it.
0: Excellent. Um, I, I, um, second your endorsement of a French village and I know that Bill Galston agrees because it, it's come up once before in our conversations. Um, it's uh, it's genius uh, because it takes one of the most difficult subjects and um, uh, and makes it, you know not simple it makes it more complex right you, you, they don't do anything cheap in this series about you know good guys versus bad guys collaborators versus honorable resistance members it's really nuanced and uh, very clear that even people who sometimes you know are you know think that they're doing the right thing maybe aren't and that i i thought the deepest part of it was that you lo- you watch this and you think for yourself you know I, I'm not sure where, you know, where I would have fallen al- along that spectrum. Um, it's, it's very hard. And finally, I just have to add a comment that was made by my friend Danielle Frum, who said, you know, you, you, you watch this and you have sympathy for the characters and the difficult moral choices that they have. She said, on the other hand, when you look at the people who collaborated with Trump, you think there was nothing on the line for them. <laughs> there was there was no Gestapo. There were no consequences to them doing the right thing and they didn't. So I think that's worth noting. All right. Um, sorry about my dog barking in the background. Um, all right. Um so we've got Bill, Damon, Linda. We've got everybody. I guess it's my turn. Um I will just note uh that I really can recommend the the series Shtisel, hard to pronounce. It's in Hebrew. Um it is an Israeli series. It's available on Netflix. Um it's about the ultra orthodox community in Israel. And even though I'm Jewish, I have to say I'm not part of that world. And it's in some ways as alien to me as it would be to anybody who wasn't Jewish. And yet this series is so touching and so it dry, d- draws you into the character so much. And it is just a wonderful piece of work. And it ends, you know, it's all tied up in a bow at the end, too, which is not always the case with these series where they seem to sort of run out of steam and then peter out. This comes to a nice conclusion. Um, so Stiesel, I recommend it. I second that. Ah, there we go. Okay. I, th-
4: I third that uh, <laughs> with the footnote that it's not over, Mona. It's not? No, they're going to make a third season.
0: Oh, so- that's news to me. Okay, great. Well, something to I hope look it's forward good. To. Yeah, something to look forward to. All right, excellent. Okay, let us move now to our final segment, something that we want to highlight. Linda, you go first.
3: I wanted to highlight one of the people who was, um, in fact, uh, pardoned that um, has not gotten as much attention. And I want to point to it because I think there may be more to this story than meets the eye. Um, Trump, in his commutations yesterday, uh, also commuted, in addition to war criminals and uh, politicians and others, commuted the sentence of a uh, man named Philip Formis or S. Forms. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. He's a Miami Beach healthcare mogul who was convicted of playing a role in the nation's biggest Medicare fraud case. He uh, won a commutation of his 20 year sentence. What he was convicted of was paying bribes, money laundering, and other charges. And I hope somebody tracks this down because I you know, I looked at this and I said, "This one isn't quite the same as the others. What does Trump get out of this? And so I think, as in all these cases, follow the money trail. Um, Don't know if it's real or not, but it is interesting that this guy got pardoned, and I just wonder if there was some promise um, of some financial remuneration to somebody for this one.
0: Interesting. Okay, Damon. Damon.
2: Well, um, I I am sort of known, I think, on the podcast for plugging uh, Ross Douthat of the Times. This is probably my third time in the last year or so that I've highlighted something of his. And I actually want to go even a little bigger than one column. Ross was off for about a month after the election and didn't write, uh, and then he came back, and since then, since early December, he's written, uh, I guess, about five columns, and they all have been really just incredibly good, and two of them in particular, uh, I want to highlight one from December 12th titled The Texas Lawsuit and the Age of Dream Politique, uh, which is kind of about the tendency of people of both parties, the Republicans worse and more ominously, but some on the Democratic side as well, a tendency to kind of revert and and absorb themselves into a kind of fantasy version of politics. And he raises uh, very provocatively the question of at what point does the fantasy interact with and begin to bleed over into the real? Uh, and that's his very interesting and I think fruitful way of thinking about the Texas lawsuit that the Supreme Court knocked down and the tendency of several dozen House Republicans to uh, to go along with it and where that might lead. And then most recently, last Sunday, he wrote another great column titled, When You Can't Just Trust the Science, about uh, the, the tendency, again, of, of people on both sides of the aisle uh, to seek out authorities that can simply be trusted and and kind of and kind of uh Backing away from the need for democratic deliberation about exactly what to do in light of the science. So it's by no means doubt that saying that we should not trust the science, the experts, the epidemiologists over how to respond to the pandemic, for instance. He's not saying that at all. But he is saying that when the experts give us their opinion, it is still up to us to decide what to do with it, what policies to pursue, whether to shut down schools or bars or restaurants and for how long and what rules to impose. And that we can't simply uh, be alleviated of the need for that prudential decision just because we have scientists around. And I guess the, the main point is to, to, delicately say to Biden and some of the Democrats coming in that a little of the rhetoric about we just have to trust the science, follow whatever the scientists say is a kind of dodge or an attempt to elude the responsibility that is always incumbent on legislators and other people in positions of authority. So again, great work from Ross lately, and these two columns in particular are definitely worth reading and wrestling with.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, all right. Let us now move on to Bill.
4: First of all, uh, I agree with Damon about Ross's most recent column, uh, but it gave me a cause to reflect that I had learned that point in my freshman political philosophy course, uh, at Cornell University, in the fall of 1963. Uh, And we have fallen so far that when, you know, when a colonist has to remind us of something that people with a modicum of education (laughs) have known for centuries, uh, we have fallen pretty far. Uh, I don't mean to take anything away from Ross, uh, but, you know, we have forgotten so much now that old chestnuts uh, can emerge as new insights. Uh, but let me, let me now recommend uh, not a column, but a rather lengthy article by one of the best observers and analysts of democracy, Timothy Garden Ash. Uh, it's an essay that just came out in Prospect magazine, a British magazine not to be confused with the American Prospect. The essay is entitled The Future of Liberalism. And it is absolutely the most balanced treatment of the subject uh, that I think I've I've ever read. Uh, it's one of those pieces where at the end I say, I wish I had written that. Uh, which, of course, calls to mind the famous story about Oscar Wilde, uh, who was at a dinner party seated next to a friend and somebody across the table said something insanely witty. Uh, and wild leaned over to his friend and said, I wish I'd said that. To which the friend replied, don't worry, Oscar, you will. (laughs) Yep. Good
0: story. Um, And it was uh, The Future of Liberalism. And what publication did you say it was in again?
4: Prospect Magazine. Prospect. It's a British, it's a British publication. It's, this is really, I don't say this very often. It's a must read essay.
0: Okay. I will read it. Um, okay. Well, Sarah Longwell.
1: So maybe I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm not on every day. Is the, is the format we're elevating something that we've read in particular, or can you just elevate any idea?
0: Anything you like, whether, and we don't always elevate. Sometimes we take shots.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to hit just because pardons, we kind of touched on them, but we didn't sort of, you know, dig super deep. Uh, I have been, um... Trump's abuse of the pardon power is something that uh, I find particularly galling about him because I think it reflects who he is, which is a the kind of person who, um, you know, the kind of strong man who would admire uh, war criminals and, and and um, and you know, like to, to pardon them. But I, I wanted to just quickly sort of highlight the way that I, I was seeing his pardons come through yesterday and they seem to fit into... Uh, kind of a pattern in terms of who he's pardoned thus far uh, and who I think we could see pardoned in the future. And so I, I put them in three buckets in terms of who do I who does Trump like to pardon? So the first is obviously war criminals. Um, we saw with the, the Blackwater uh, pardons that he handed down yesterday. But that is an extension of the Eddie Gallagher Pardon uh, the Navy SEAL, whom you know, Mona. You had an excellent piece about this at, at one point, um, where his his comrades, his his people uh, in his group, they said that he was evil, and uh, and they turned on on him and and testified against him, uh, which at is risk uncommon to their
0: own careers.
1: That's right, at great risk to their own careers. And no, those are the kinds of people uh, that President Trump likes to pardon. So, war criminals is one bucket. The other bucket is. Um, basically anybody involved in the Mueller investigation. Like Trump is obsessed with undoing the progress that uh, the Department of Justice uh, made in sort of making cases against people like Flynn um, or Roger Stone or Paul Manafort. Um, And so, so far, you know, we've seen uh, Trump get off, you know, let Stone off the hook, Flynn, most recently, Papadopoulos, there's another guy in there whose name I forget, but who's a a little bit like Papadopoulos. Um, But all people, you know, where it's geared toward trying to to memory hole the idea that the Mueller investigation uh, had any content in it that was, you know, actually very bad for Trump, which of course did. (laughs) Um, So that's the second bucket is the Mueller investigation. Then the third bucket is Corrupt politicians who support Donald Trump. Um, and so that could be uh, Rod Blagojevich, which was an early pardon of Donald Trump's, uh, to now uh, Duncan Hunter and uh, Collins, whose first name I'm forgetting, but both of them, uh, Collins and Hunter, were two of Trump's very, very first supporters, both of whom ended up embroiled in one in a money laundering scheme and the other one in a campaign finance uh, scam in which he blamed his wife and bought the tickets plane tickets for the family's pet rabbit. It um, was going to look at, was looking at 11 months in jail. Uh, he was we- also
0: having an affair, which his wife didn't know about until this case.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, it is going back to the, the Mark Rich pardon. It just, e- each one of these individually, uh, is 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 it the same level or not worse than that pardon which which really was a stain on on Clinton's legacy uh and Trump just in big batches uh one by one really disgraces uh the power of the pardon.
0: Uh couldn't agree more. I have a piece up on the bulwark uh right now uh, about this very subject uh, where I revisit it. Um thank you for that. I will recommend uh for my pick um a piece that uh, appeared in the Washington Post by my old friend, Mitch Daniels, uh, now the president of Purdue University. Um, But uh, previously he was uh, involved in the government and Republican administrations. And he uh, most recently, I guess, was the uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget, which is the post that Neera Tandon has been nominated for. And um, he writes a piece saying Republicans can take a step toward improving the atmosphere and toward comedy by confirming her. Um, you know, he acknowledges, yes, she's been very tart and partisan and so forth on, on Twitter. But uh but he says, you know, that's that that shouldn't be disqualifying. Pres we used to have the thought that presidents were entitled to the cabinet that they uh that they prefer, absent evidence of severe uh, uh you know uh, unfitness and um and so he said you know it's uh it is time to let bygones be bygones in her case and uh and and confirm her he said I don't expect to agree and by the way as I mentioned this is Post that he has held, um, he 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 couldn't resist making a little sly comment about how, in a Democratic administration, it's not even that important a post because in Republican White Houses, uh, the office, the director of the OMB is the one who always says, "No, we shouldn't spend more money." <laughs> he said that won't be an issue for Democrats. Okay, little jibe, funny. But basically, his his uh, article is does have a serious point, which is that um, that we have to start building back toward a more civil uh, and less rancorous politics, and uh, that this would be a very good place to start. And it's easy for outsiders to say it, but uh, but when somebody who was a leading Republican office holder and held that very post says it, it carries a little extra weight. So, good on him. Uh, We are finished with this podcast. We want to thank all of our listeners. Thanks Sarah Longwell for joining us. Wishing everyone an extremely happy holiday and we will be back next week like every week.